Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to help people walk toward His love. It's open, it's free, it's inviting, without a price, without cost. Check Jesus out. Hey everyone, do you have uh, anyone in your life that was once Christian but is now an atheist? Do you know anybody like that? Uh, perhaps you have a son or a daughter or a grandchild who attended Christian school and was uh, sort of ruined by it. I know a lot of people that that's happened to, and they now want nothing to do with the faith. Maybe you know uh, someone who loves the Lord but is really bitter toward the Bible or toward organized religion and how uh, the Bible is put out by some of that. We have a gift for you. It's a book called Knife to a Gunfight, and we want to get it into the right hands. And that's those people who have have great difficulty with the faith, and perhaps maybe they once had a relationship with it. Check out the links below. The links below. The reason is we've put that on audiobook. We have it on, of course, uh, you can get a material copy of it. And uh, we, you can order it online if you don't have any money or you can't afford it. Or even if you don't want to pay for it, go ahead. You can just order it. Email us an address and we'll send you one. Unless you live overseas, you're going to have to uh, listen to it on audio. But uh, Seth did a good job putting that audio uh, book together. And you can just listen to it chapter by chapter. We don't create these books to make money. We create them for people like you to have resources to change your mind and change other people's minds and hearts and hopefully open up and make their lives a little bit better than what they currently are. So come forth and get your copy one way or another. If you hadn't read it yourself, check it out. That is Knife to a Gunfight. We think it's one of our best written works. And with that, let's have a quick word of prayer. Father, we recognize you in all things and we know that this life is going to end. And it's a breath on a vapor on glass, a breath on a mirror, and we have a short existence. So we're grateful for it and all the material blessings we have in it and the fun and joys and, and friendships and fellowship and all that stuff. But we pray that we'll have the eternal view and realize that this will end and uh, that we want to be people who love and love others. So we uh, pray for our staff and our volunteers and anybody who's involved in keeping the show and the programs going. And, uh, and we pray for our studio audience and those who are at home watching on the archives in Jesus name. Amen. Sunday's best. We're, uh, working on a two day conference. It'll be a Friday, a late afternoon on a Friday and a, a full day Saturday. We're calling it Sunday's best. It's going to be in the spring of 2020. And we're looking for three qualified presenters to join us and stand before these cameras and explain why they think their particular approach to the faith is the best approach on the face of the earth. We're looking for a pastor that's an Arminian. That means they believe in free will. We're looking for a pastor or uh, expert who uh, that is Reformed or Calvinist. And we're looking for an Orthodox priest or someone who can articulate orthodoxy, Greek, Russian, whatever, really well. Relative to Reformed theology, I've mentioned before that we invited James White and Jeff Durbin. Both of them refused to participate. I thought it would be a great opportunity for 
experts in the field of Calvinism to step forward and, and present why it is just the best way for people to follow Jesus, but they want nothing to do with it. And then people are saying I should, I should get Dave Bartosowitz. Uh, he ought to represent Greek Orthodoxy or Orthodoxy. Uh, in the first place, he's pretty much, I mean, I mean this with respect, he's a, he's a novice to the faith. He's been in the faith for a couple years and uh, he doesn't really understand it completely, even though he, he pretty much espouses that. And then, too, Dave blocked me from any communication with him online, so I have no way of contacting him. So if you know people, a, a Calvinist, Arminianist pastor, or an Orthodox pastor, or somebody who's really ensconced in that, Please tell them to contact me and join us for Sunday's Best in the spring of 2020. As I said before, we already have committed speakers who will talk on Judaism and uh, Mormonism and Roman Catholicism, subjective Christianity and the remnant movement. And uh, we just need Arianism, uh, not Arianism. Ar <laughs> Sorry, guys. We just need Arminianism, um, Calvinism and orthodoxy. I've been on a thought kick a little bit about uh, religious zealots. And the reason I've been thinking about them is because I used to be one. I've been one twice in my life. I was one when I was an LDS member. And then I was a zealot when I first became a born again Christian and embraced evangelicalism pretty ardently. And, you know, um, I realized that evidences of religious zeal uh, are always best found, of course, naturally, in the extremes of things. You're not going to find too much zeal in a middle-of-the-road type person, but you find zeal in the extremes. And we have the far-right um, religious zeal, and these are the people who take uh, uh, God and they use Him as, in an extreme. So the far-right religious zeal people, everything is absolutely God. I mean everything. That graham cracker on the counter, God. Everything is God to, to the far-right religious zealot. God destines, predestines everything to, the, to them. Everything is done by him. Oh, thank God for, for that water fountain. And God is in everything. And they take the scriptures that talk about that literally, actually, and they speak of God in every single thing. Um, God is totally present in everything. He's, he's present in every situation, and he's the constant subject of every conversation. Uh, these typically see other people who don't believe in God or Jesus as evil. Typically, they will see them as evil. And typically, not always, but typically, the extreme far-right zealot, religious zealot sees people as burning in hell later. That, that generally comes with religious zeal. Uh, so, uh, and they are also typically biblical literalists, where they take the Bible and what it says very literally, and it just goes hand in hand with that mindset of this far-right zeal that some people have. And, uh, but the other side, which is not really thought about as much as being religiously zealous, but that's the polar opposite extreme, is the far left side, and they are atheists. They are just as zealous in their religious uh, stance. It's a religious stance that they have. So where the far right, everything is absolutely God, the atheist is, is everything is absolutely no God. 
They have the same, they have the same mindset, but it's just at the, the opposite extreme. And to the far right, God destined, uh, predestines or destines everything. Since there is no heavenly, uh, destiny to an atheist, then there either is no destiny or there is entirely a fate. They, they both, they both go about things both those ways. Uh, God is totally absent in everything. And it is the constant subject of their conversation. It's no different than someone's extremely zealous on the other side of the far right. The far left are extremely zealous of their religion of atheism. And atheists typically see those who embrace God as stupid. Versus where uh, the far right see people as evil and headed for hell, the atheist sees those who are involved with God as stupid. And to an atheist where the, uh, life is meaningless, it has no meaning whatsoever, at least to some. And uh, the interesting thing is they are also typically biblical literalists. They read the Bible literally too, just like the zealots on the other side. So same mindset driving them, but opposite attitudes. One is hyper negative about God and one is hyper positive about God. And interestingly enough, and this is my opinion, both are extremely dangerous to the faith that we call Christianity. Um, especially with youth and on young people who fall prey to their rhetoric. Uh, from the zealous right, we get, it was a six day literal creation. It was a, every animal on the ark. And uh, an impossibility to have uh, any sort of leeway in any of that stuff. But on the far left, it's, it's impossible for that there was a creative hand at all. And science and evolution disproves everything. So we have these extreme views and both of them get embraced by our young people and believed by our young people. And it, it really can hurt them and damage them relative to the faith. The zealous right, uh, we, we um, get mandates on how to live life and uh, on how to believe and on musts that must be present for you to be a real Christian. You're not saved. All of this stuff that comes out. And uh, in response to that, the zealous left, we get mockery on what the, the zealous right demands because uh, they, in many ways, deserve mockery. So... It's all really a shame, but to me, the shame is especially embarrassing on the part of the zealous right. The reason being is I get the, the zeal of the atheist. I understand that because um, I think the right is well-meaning. I think the left is um, just responding to what they have seen. And if you don't have the spirit of God with you, I think the left's views are fine because they're a worldly view. That's a man view. It's man-centered, human-centered. And so I don't blame them. I think they make sense. If there is no God, what they say is makes some sense. But the far right does so much damage because what happens is they make proclamations to children and youth that can be shown to be totally untrue. And when a kid grows up believing in that far right rhetoric, believing, 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 and then discovers when they get older that one point or two points or five points are not true or sustainable, they walk from the faith altogether. Where's the middle ground? Better put, where's the reason? Doesn't God say, come, let us reason together. 
Let's reason. Scripture says we are to worship God with, with our heart and with our mind. Did you know that? That he created us in his image and our mind has to uh, worship him too. It's not just belief. You use your mind and your reason and the, the, the capability and the ability to reason and to use rationality and to take all evidences into account and all assumptions and suppositions and oppositions. I think it's important that, that Christians learn to study oppositions for what they say and give them credit where credit is due. We're entering into an age when we need more of this, where science has, uh, deserves a tip of the hat. Christians give science the tip of the hat. If we have an unknown, we say we don't know. We, we, we believe this. We're not sure. Whatever. We don't have to be dogmatic because uh, dogma, um, it just tends to bite you. <laughs> uh, so without the spirit of God, the natural man and woman, I understand those views. It's our job to help them see another way. And opposing one side of dogma with a different side of dogma is not the way to do it, in my opinion. Just some rambling thoughts for your consideration. Finally, and speaking of zeal, we come to an interesting example of it in the New Testament. Uh, with I talked about this, and I'm going to talk about this in next week's show. But there's these people that are called scribes. They're also known as lawyers in the New Testament. And they were the apparent experts in interpreting the law of Moses and also the prophets. And they're mentioned as coming to Jesus and they're always challenging him and trying to use their understanding of the written word to trick him. And it's really amazing that in 2019, we continue to have scribes here on earth and they do the very same thing to everybody else. They walk around just like the scribes did then, and they try to catch you using the word. They've make their, they make their profession on it. And uh, they challenge the views of anyone who differs with them by using the, the law of the, of the Old and New Testament. And when the scribes tried to do that with Jesus, he slammed them uh, with his ability to comprehend things that they couldn't see in Scripture. You know, he told them, listen, search the scriptures in John 5, 39, for in them you think you have eternal life. He says, search them. You think you have eternal life written in those. And he says, but they're those, they are they which testify of me. You see, eternal life is in him. He is that eternal life, as John says. And, and so he tells the scribal people who had a lockdown on the written word, hey, go search your scriptures. You think they have eternal life. They don't. They testify of me. And so when our scribes today are wandering around trying to trap with the word of God, uh, they're missing the mark because we don't need those traps. We need Jesus. He is the one. He is that eternal life. We look to him. We don't look to those uh, tricks. So all the study and recitation of the scripture our modern scribes think they have eternal life, but the reality is it just exists in our Lord and King. Has not the man-made Protestant cliche of sola scriptura created this approach in the hearts of zealous men and women today who in the mud puddles with all their knowledge miss the point of Jesus as the victor of all things, that he is who is necessary, 
that he will be misinterpreted by different people and he won't be fully understood by everybody. But if they seek him in spirit and truth and love him, he's enough. Do we, how long is our society going to uh, cater to and support scribes who make their living touring about and debating with people and thinking that they do God's work when God's work is all about love? Some more things to think about. So last week on Tuesday night, I attempted to make a point about how I would do church today if, remember this, if Jesus had not come back. That was what the point I was making. If he hadn't come back, how I would do church. Well, some people missed that and they wrote in some comments. And so I based last week's show by using what the apostles and what Jesus said to the church in that day, that they had to be holy, that they had to be righteous, that they had to clean up their act, that they had to repent, that they had to stop fornicating, that they couldn't get drunk. These were all things from the scripture that was said, right? So uh, I use that as my text to show that if Jesus hasn't come back and taken his bride, I would be a pastor that was preaching what the Bible said. So to hit on some of the emails we got, John O'Reardon wrote, and it's not, it's not anything to do with what I just said. Can anyone help me? Is this, meaning Harlem Matter, every night or once a week? I live in Ireland, Dublin, and only caught this by chance. It was 3 a.m. Thanks and God bless everybody. This is what we do really quickly. John O'Reardon, which is really close to, what was that guy's name? John O'Fallon. Um, we have a show on Monday nights, John. It airs at 8 p.m. Utah time, mountain time. And it goes for an hour, half an hour, depending on the subject. And then Tuesday night, we follow up with what I'm doing right now live with call-ins or reading emails. So that's the setup right now. That's how it works. And that's, that's what we're doing. So if you want to watch the shows, you can do it. I'm going to take a call really quickly from Mike in Heber City on line three. Mike, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, my brother, how you doing tonight? Good, how you doing? Pretty good. Hey, I just wanted to call and offer a few words of encouragement to all of those wonderful people out there who are thinking about leaving the Mormon Church or who have just left the Mormon Church. Um, I was born in the Mormon Church and left it quite a while ago, and... There was a lot of ostracization and bad experiences that I had in the process. In fact, I lost my very job as a teacher. Wow. But uh, things came down to one question, was it worth it? And those of you who are now thinking about leaving the LDS or the Mormon Church, understand that God has found some way into your heart and is trying to open the door for you to find salvation, and I was told that was the devil talking to me, and I was told that that was the darkness coming on to me, and I found out that that's the exact opposite. And I think some of you people that are frustrated with the decision, please understand that once I had drawn closure and left the Mormon Church, I had not realized how much bondage I was truly in, and how I had been spiritually ran over and and separated from the true and living Word of Christ. And the truth of the matter is, the heart of the matter is, that once you leave the LDS Church and look for God, God will look for you and find you. And 
I promise you one thing, when you leave the LDS church and you become a true born-again Christian, don't worry about leaving the Mormon church. It will leave you, and you will find a new path to salvation. To prove that to you, uh, Sam Wall of Walmart just died a while ago. I realized he didn't take one of the single stores with him. Didn't take any of any of it with him. And I realized for a fact that once you lay down and breathe that last breath, you're going to ask the question, have I lived this life successfully? And the only way you're going to know if you have or not is if you've been saved. And the only way you'll know that is through Christ. And I can promise you one thing. When you look at the mechanics of the Mormon Church, it, it is designed to lead you away from Christ. And, you know, if you were the devil, wouldn't you start a church, call it God, and say there is no hell, but there's three degrees of glory? And that's my take on things. So I wanted to offer that to you tonight as I pour myself a big glass of Outer Darkness beer and pick up the <laughs> Book of Job. I just wanted to leave you at that thought. My brother, so well said. And I uh, really appreciate your perspective. You said things we haven't said for a long time on the show. And uh, you're speaking from the heart and from one who knows. So I hope people are listening and taking that to heart. I loved what you had to say, Mike. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sean. And God bless you. And I got to give you kudos for all that endless patience, for all that circle talk you have endured. <laughs> <laughs> it has been amazing. <laughs> Thanks, my friend. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you, Sean. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Thank you, uh, Mike from Heber City. Joan Lantis asked the question from last week's show, if you can't lose the Holy Ghost within you, then how can you lose your salvation? It's a really good question. I hate to be hair splitting, my sister, but there is no losing salvation in my estimation, uh, nor is there any losing the Holy Spirit. I don't think we lose other. The Holy Spirit indwells in us based on faith in Christ. That's a basic, right? And it doesn't leave or abandon us uh, because we make mistakes or because we sin, because it didn't move into us because we were perfect. It moved into us because we had faith in Christ. So it remains in, in us if you have faith in Christ and it never leaves, it doesn't leave because of failures and mistakes. And that uh, scripture talks about it being grieved and scripture talks about the Holy Spirit being uh, quenched, but or extinguished, uh, meaning put dampered down, but it doesn't leave. It is permanently there because of Christ and what he did. Um, so, however, if a person who is walking in the faith renounces faith in Christ, and I'm not talking about having doubts and wondering if they're a believer or not or getting involved in some sin that makes them weak in their faith. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about if somebody actually cognitively from the heart says, no more Jesus. I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with faith in Christ. I'm done with God. Forget all of that stuff. No way. Then they haven't lost their salvation they know right where they abandon it. And I don't think they lose the Holy Spirit. I think they, they tell the Holy Spirit, depart. And it's really interesting because there is this insipid idea that once you have had Jesus in you, you cannot walk from him. And scripture in at least seven to nine places makes it very clear that's a lie. Uh, and that's what Calvinism teaches. Hebrews 6.4 makes the point really clear. Listen to it. 
The writer of Hebrews says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Okay, that says it right there. Who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. There's two. And were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. There's three. Those are three things. And have tasted the good word of God. There's four. And the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away. So it's impossible for people who have had all that happen. If they should fall away, meaning all that can happen and they can fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the son of God afresh and put him to open shame. Now we have all this BS out there. Once you believed, you will always believe. He will never let you, anyone snatch you out of his hand. Jesus was talking to his disciples and to his apostles when he said, I know who my, my sheep are. So he will never snap you out of his hand. That's right for people who choose to follow him in faith, meaning that sin can't take you away or the devil can't take you away or whatever. You have faith in Jesus. No one can take you. But also scripture says it's very possible for someone who's had all of those experiences, even with the Holy Spirit coming in and then partaking of the powers of the worlds to come, that if they fall away, that means if they walk away, that for, to renew them again. So I hope that makes sense, um, Joan. This was a great email. I love this one. It's from Nick. It says, I rarely disagree with Sean, but damn, I have to flat out reject this video. That's last week's video that we showed on a Monday night. Saved by, no, was it last night's he said that? No, it was last week's. Saved by grace alone, by faith alone is the truth. It is the goodness of God that brings us to repentance. I'm afraid of Sean when he stated grace alone, hyper grace, etc. We are saved by the blood of Christ, by grace alone. No works added from the sinner to the perfect work of God. Then he adds, now with that being said, we should not have, we should not have dead faith, but faith that is alive. We are free to choose. Laborers are few, sadly. God's spirit brings inspiration and moves us toward good works and doing as Christ would do. Saved already toward good works, letting our light shine. Do not disrespect the blood of Christ by saying hyper grace or easy believing or grace alone. Remember, Jesus' life was the price that was paid for us to live. Do not take that lightly. That is what works-based salvation, a.k.a. Mormons, do. The LDS church is false. I support Sean's cause. I'm an ex-LDS. Sean is right that we should live the teachings of Christ, the same teachings and commandments that God has written on our new heart. But holiness and righteousness can only come from faith alone in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then he writes, P.S. When can I get on the show? I live in St. George. Let's make it happen. Uh, you email me, brother, and we'll talk about making that happen. But I wrote back and I said, you need to re-listen to what I said, truly. The context of my comments, uh, listen to them. I concur with everything you wrote here uh, if it's all included together. Uh, salvation by grace through faith. I, I, I believe that. Um, but 
the expectations on those saved is what I was referring to on the show. And it was all based in eschatology. You see, what I said is that if Jesus has not come and taken his bride, then the apostolic record is clear. Those saints had to walk in holiness. That was my point. And that if Jesus hasn't come and taken his church, then I would today be a pastor that would not be preaching, hey, it's just, don't worry, easy grace, he's done it all. I would be, get yourself ready and straightened up and repent because he's coming back to take his bride. Why would I do that? Because that's what the apostles, that's what Jesus said to the church in that day. You better get right because I'm coming back. And if you're not, I'll leave you stone cold. That was the context, my friend. So on the side, um, you know, if you think about salvation, it comes like a coin. And this, and if you try to just make it one-sided coin, which is impossible, I think, but if you try, you're missing the whole of Scripture from the New Testament perspective for the bride of that age. The coin is salvation. On the head side, the main side, is faith in Jesus Christ. That's the coin of salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved by grace through faith, done, period, fine. But on the back side, the tail side of that coin, is the word written, love. And anyone who has received Christ by faith, the head side, automatically will love. Maybe not perfectly, but they will learn to love others better by Christ in them. Show me someone who says, I've been saved by grace through faith, and doesn't have love in their life, either some point in time in their Christian life, and, and, and it doesn't grow, I'll show you someone who I question whether they hold the coin of salvation. Now, it's debated back and forth, and I understand your point. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Jesus has already done that. He saved us. I believe Jesus has saved the world. In fact, I don't even think faith plays a, plays a role in salvation from hell to life after this. I don't even think it plays a role. I think he's had victory. But I think faith does play a role in entering the kingdom of heaven, the, great, the new Jerusalem on high. So, but getting back to the point, if you have been saved by grace through faith, which is that's all it is on that side of the coin, then on the back side of that says love and people who have been will love. And I don't think you can get around that on uh, in the scripture. Phoenix, uh, the Cavalier writes, if you want to see a church that thinks they're living the Bible literally, check out Westboro Baptist Church. Amen. There you go. That's what you get when you find someone who are a church that's scribal. They use the word literally and they say, we live it. That's Westboro Baptist. And all everything else is kind of an extension of that. Finally, Jim Lewis, who got hot under the collar from my comments on wine drinking in the Orthodox Church. Uh, what I said last week was, Paul says, do not get drunk with wine. That was to the church then, the bride. Do not get drunk with wine, but be full of the Spirit. And I read that, and in context with that, I said, that ought to say something to those Greek Orthodox who get drunk every weekend on wine. Well, Jim Luas or Lois did not appreciate that, and he writes, So last year you told Dave Bartosowitz you knew very little about orthodoxy. Last year I did know very little about orthodoxy. Now you know that many Greek Orthodox get drunk every weekend. I do know that many Greek Orthodox do get drunk every weekend. I know them. 
So I didn't make that up. I've learned that about some of them. Like I said last week, not all, but some. And some do. What are you trying to suggest? He goes on. I come from a large Greek Orthodox family and have many friends in the church. I'm not sure how they're all hiding this debauchery from me. He uses that word debauchery because that's the word that's used in the King James that Paul uses. That to be getting drunk with wine is debauchery. That's what Paul said, not me. Paul said it. He says, I don't know how they were all hiding this debaucherous debauchery for me, but of course you can substantiate your claim, right? I can substantiate my claim. Then he adds, is tearing down others to build, to build your own ministry really the right way? Question mark. First of all, I don't tell, tear down others to build this ministry. Um, brother, I try to speak the truth and let people decide for themselves what they want to see and hear. I, I don't benefit by saying that uh, there's some Greek Orthodox that get drunk on wine. I don't benefit by that. What? Do I fill this place up with ex-Greek Orthodox who are mad that, they, that others drink? What are you talking about? We don't build the ministry on that. We build the ministry on trying to expose anything that puts people into bondage. Greek Orthodoxy, or Orthodoxy in my opinion, puts people in religious bondage. I don't approve. I don't like that. I hate religious bondage. I was in it. And I still see it. So we fight against that. And I think Greek Orthodoxy and your large family that's in it and the many friends that you have that are Greek Orthodox, I don't care that they are. But if someone in there is trying to examine freedom in Christ, they watch the show. Hopefully we can touch on uh, touch on a nerve. So uh, the question I have is, is wine forbidden in Greek Orthodoxy? Is getting drunk forbidden in Greek Orthodoxy? If it is, how come the Greek Orthodox people that I know, the few that I know that uh, get drunk on weekends, how come they're not following that rule? Is Greek Orthodoxy like Mormonism? You can't drink at all? And if you can drink, are you telling me people don't get drunk? So, of course, I can substantiate my claim, but here's the problem with yours, uh, uh, Jim. You use your experience with your particular family and with your many friends to uh, justify the idea that you're trying to perpetrate that Greeks don't get drunk, that the Greek Orthodox don't ever drink to, uh, to excess like Paul warns against. And I would have to say I've found that to be absolutely not true. And I know some that do. They relish in their wine drinking. And it's not just on weekends. So uh, Paul's the one who laid down the law on this. And this was the point of the whole thing. If Paul laid down the law about not getting drunk, that it's debauchery in the Bible, how are any Greek Orthodox or any Christian getting drunk? Now, I don't care if you drink and get drunk. I'm just telling you what Paul says. So you answer me that. Finally, last night, we posted part two on the Holy Spirit relative to the LDS. And uh, we received the following uh, comments uh, on that show, which I have to look up on my phone. But the first one comes from Adnan. And he says, Sean, I was wondering if you could touch on the Holy Spirit being the Spirit of God and how it relates to certain characteristics of the Holy Spirit, such as how the Holy Spirit can be grieved. If it can be grieved, does that mean the Spirit has the ability to express emotions that are separate and distinct from the Father? If so, I can see how it be, could be considered a person. But if not, can you give some insight on how you view it? He adds, this was a fantastic and insightful show in deciphering truth from lies. 
while maintaining a subjective and individual relationship with our Lord. Can't believe I never really realized it before, but it is the fruit of love that is the litmus test to differentiate truth from lies. What he means by that, thanks Adnan. Well, first of all, let me say, on the Holy Spirit being the Spirit of God and not an individual personage of spirit, um, we did a show on that, and I have to look at the notes to refresh my memory on how I justified that or th came to think that, Adnan. And I'll look through my notes and I'll try to hit on it next week when we do our uh, Tuesday night open live show. But the using the fruit of the Spirit to determine doctrinal truths and lies, what he's talking about is I said, listen, one of the best ways to find out if you are following a doctrinal truth or not is to see what it produces in you in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, if you embrace a doctrine and the, and the, and the result of that action produces something that's not the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, you should question that doctrine you've embraced. There's no reason that a believer should embrace a doctrine and it causes them to become unloving, right? So for example, test yourself. Take the uh, doctrine of eternal punishment for the whole, anybody who never heard the name Jesus Christ, just use it at, at that and say, yes, they're going to burn forever in hell. And just keep talking about that doctrine. Yep, that's right. Everyone who doesn't this, they're going to hell forever. Yep, that's right. And you see what it produces in your life in terms of fruit toward other people. And in time, you will discover that that doctrine in your heart will make you less loving toward other people rather than more. And that's the litmus test that Adnan's speaking of. So I appreciate you pointing that out, my brother. Uh, listen, we also have this. Ultra Air says, you should have some Calvinists on to have fruitful discussion. Tolerance is a virtue. Uh, I, I would have any Calvinist on anytime uh, who is skilled in, in Calvinism to just come and chat. I won't have a Calvinist on to debate. I don't believe in debate. I don't think it gets does any good because the people who win debates are people who are skilled at debating. Uh, that happened with, uh, with, uh, with uh, who's the guy who left the Mormon church? He's now a Jew. Baker. Lee Baker. That happened with Lee Baker. Lee Baker's not a debater. And he went out to, to Jason Wallace's church and, and uh, there was a debate there with Dr. James White who travels the world to debate people. That's all the guy does. And, and, and Lee Baker, he's not a debater. He just said, no, you know, and so who walks away looking like the winner? The one who's skilled at debate. It's like if you're a master uh, mixed martial artist and you get into the boxing ring with a boxer and it's a boxing match. The mixed martial artist isn't going to do very well. The boxer's going to kill him. And so that's what, that's what debaters uh, rely on. Getting people that they can beat. That's all it's about. I'm not about beating people. I'm about understanding. They don't want to understand. They don't want to open the door to it. But I'll take any Calvinist who just wants to talk. I want to ask him questions. I really want to know answers to these questions and hear honest replies. So if you know a Calvinist out there, Ultra Air, or any of you else know a Calvinist who will come on and just answer these questions, no debate. They could say anything. They could say God's a monkey and he uh, lights the fires of hell with coal. I'll say, fine, if that's what you believe and that's sure. 
But I don't want to debate them. I think that's a waste. All right. Uh, Matthew says, love you, Sean. Vernal, Utah, in the house. Uh, Itty bitty piggy story time. (laughs) Amen. Neither Jesus nor real scripture nor the Holy Spirit will tell us we are superior and to look down on others. That is so important when you, when you just heard that because the Holy Spirit would never, the fruit of its love would never cause a Christian to look at another person and look down on them and judge them and, and call them unsaved and worthy of hell and evil. It wouldn't do it. So if you're doing that, you're not of the Spirit. And that's the point that my favorite titled person, three itty bitty piggy story time, uh, said, Rex Albright wrote, LDS Church is an institutional con. What other churches do you put in that category? And I replied back, all of them. So, and I think they all are institutional cons. I, I, I'm sorry. I know they can do good. I know they can help and they can provide community stuff for people. But in the end, there is a con game going on there that people have to support the institution and Jesus is happy with them for doing that. I don't like it. And I think we could start off on a better foot. Uh, Huff Humble, he is LDS. He says, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints definitely view the Holy Ghost as being inside us, exclamation point. But we also believe the Holy Ghost is a gift that can come upon anyone at any time. But after baptism, we receive the gift of the Holy Ghost as a permanent part of us through the authority of the Holy Priesthood. But we do believe its staying in us is at least somewhat based on our choices, which we call agency. That is a bunch of contradictions, my brother. I really like you. But when you say uh, after baptism, the Holy Ghost is a permanent part of us. That's what you say first. Though the through the authority of the holy priesthood, but then you add, but um, we do believe it's staying in us is at least based on our choices. You're contradicting yourself there. You're saying, I agree with the Christians, the Holy Spirit is permanently with us, but the Holy Spirit can leave based on our choices. See, that is not what the Christian belief they believe the Holy Spirit is in us, with us always in fact even more with us when our choices are bad so we can't make this equal uh, with the LDS and the Christians brother Huff the LDS clearly teach that when you do some sin especially if it's egregious in their books you bang the neighbor's wife you lose the Holy Spirit and it's conditional the Christian teaches, and I mean, there may be some pastors out there that teach what the LDS teach. I don't. You can grieve the Holy Spirit and you can, you can, you can make the Holy Spirit sad as what the, that is how it's defined. But the Holy Spirit doesn't abandon you when you've sinned. The Holy Spirit is more with those, uh, uh, when you sin. Why? Because it's leading you to change your mind about what you've done. And it's causing you to go back to Christ and say, oh man, I really blew it this time. And that's what the Holy Spirit's job is, you see. So it doesn't leave you. And and that's where this misappropriation comes from. And by the way, in, in, as far as the Holy Spirit being in you, the LDS teaching is clear. The Holy Spirit is only in one place. You can feel its effects like the sun upon you. But it cannot be in more, pla- more than one place at one time. 
because it's a personage of spirit. The Christians believe the Holy Spirit can be everywhere, in everybody all the time. Because it's not, well, they, they say it's a personage of spirit. I don't know how they justify this. I say it's not a personage of spirit. I say it's the spirit of God and it can be everywhere in everybody at the same time. The LDS say no. So finally, um, just to let you know, uh, someone sent me an email and said, the Book of Mormon teaches that the Holy Spirit is in us. And that's how she justified the idea that the LDS teach the Holy Spirit dwells within us like the Bible teaches. And I don't have that book with me that my friend Dan Weiss wrote, but I'm going to tell you something. The Book of Mormon is a product of the Bible. And just because the Book of Mormon will teach biblical tenets does not by any, any means mean that um, Mormons believe everything it says. And so if the Book of Mormon teaches that the Holy Ghost is in us, that does not mean Mormonism teaches it too. The Book of Mormon teaches a number of other things that current LDS uh, theology does not embrace. Let's go to Justin, who is in California. Uh, Justin, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sh uh, Pastor Sean. How you doing? Call me Sean. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing all right. And yourself, sir? I'm doing good. Hey, uh... Um I just wanted to call. It's something truly dear to my heart. Uh, it's really hard to do. Ah, forgive me. Um, about, I don't know, six months ago, you talked about um, roles of people. And uh, my little brother, he's a drug addict. And, uh, I, I clearly remember you talking about how God, I mean, His grace is, He makes pots for, for glory and pots for destruction. And I remember you spoke upon something that uh, God makes people for certain things and that we should still love them and, uh, and brought some, like, light to my heart for about my little brother and he's a drug addict and just it kills me every day I pray for him but it's like destroying him but what you said really helped me and I just wanted to say thank you oh praise God my friend how old is your younger brother he's uh, he's 31 years old and and what's the drug of choice yeah, I, I can't say he's uh, he started on he started on the opiates and and then he I went about six months ago and he told me he's into uh, meth and Yo. all kinds of things and just it destroys me, man. I'm so sorry. Yeah, that would destroy you as a brother. I, I understand, uh, Justin. I'm so sorry, but you just keep loving him. That's the thing that's going to bring him through. He's not going to stop the drugs until he's ready, in my estimation. And so it's going to be hard to twist his arm in that direction. But when he reaches whatever point he needs to reach, and you've always loved him along the way, he'll come back. What's his first name? His name. His real name is Robert. Well, can I we pray? Can, Robbie. Can I pray for you for Robbie? I would love it, man. Okay, let's do it then. God, I'm on the air with my uh, my brother here, and I just pray that you will. Uh, step into his brother Robbie's life and you will make yourself known. You'll bring him low in whatever depths you need to take him.
for him to realize that is not the path that you want him on. We pray that you'll shine a light into his mind and heart. You'll give him the uh, willpower to drop the drugs and to turn to you with both arms open wide. We pray that you will empower his brother and his family and others who know him to love him and to, and to, to show him that love, but not to facilitate his problem. Let him suffer. And we just pray that you'll bless this family and bless this, bless this man. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Keep going, my brother. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. God bless you. Bye. God bless you. Bye-bye. Tough world out there, man. That's uh, one of the reasons we need Jesus. I hear the phone ringing. We've got 10 minutes left. I'm out of stuff, so we'll wrap it up unless that call is on fire. Can we find out? Patricio, will you go ask Kathy if there's a... Hey, check us out on Facebook. It's right there. To Click the links below. Write your comments, too, to this show. We want to hear what you have to say about the things we talk about. It's important. No call. Listen, uh, Monday night, we have another show to talk to you about, and we're getting into how exaltation and salvation comes about in the Mormon church. So we're going to hit on that. Remember, knife to a gunfight. It's audio. It's, uh, you can order it. If you don't, can't pay for it, just send us an email. And then also remember, Sunday's best. We're looking for a Calvinist to speak. We're looking for an Arminianist to speak. And we're looking for somebody in Orthodoxy to speak for 50 minutes uh, on that weekend that will be coming up. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.